Welcome to session 17 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 17th of January. Today we're starting a new book, Exodus, and we'll be looking at Exodus 1 to 3 and Psalm 17. But first of all, let's get an overview of Exodus. Exodus, like Genesis, is traditionally attributed to Moses and is part of the Torah, along with Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. While the Mosaic authorship is a long-standing tradition, modern scholars suggest that the book is likely a compilation of oral traditions, historical events and laws. These were possibly edited and compiled over centuries, with some scholars suggesting that the final form may have been completed as late as the 5th century BC. The structure of Exodus can be broadly divided into two halves, each with its own set of subsections. Here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. So the first half is from Exodus 1 to 18, and it's all about the liberation from Egypt. And so chapters 1 to 2, the Israelites are enslaved, and we have the birth of Moses. Chapters 3 to 6, we have the call of Moses and the burning bush. From chapters 7 to 11, we have the 10 plagues. And then 12 to 14, we have the Passover and the Exodus. Finally, from Exodus 15 to 18, we get the wilderness journey to Sinai. The second half, verses chapters 19 to 40, are what happens at Sinai. So it's 19 to 24 is the Sinai covenant and the 10 commandments. Chapters 25 to 31 are instructions for the tabernacle. Chapters 32 to 34 are the golden calf and the renewal of the covenant, and chapters 35 to 40 are the construction and dedication of that tabernacle. Through Exodus, we're going to see the family that God has chosen grow into a nation that is oppressed in Egypt. God is then going to use this as an opportunity to demonstrate his authority and power as he punishes Egypt and leads his people out of captivity. From there, we're going to see the rules and principles that God lays out to guide them, Remember, from Genesis, the God's plan is to use this family, now a nation, to restore all humanity back to himself. These guidelines are what are going to help guide the people towards that purpose. But, as we see throughout Exodus and beyond, the people fail in this. They are often forgetful of what God has done and resentful of what is being asked of them. Repeatedly, like their ancestors before them, they are going to choose to take things into their own hands and do things their way rather than than God's way. So let's jump in with today's reading from Exodus 1 to 3. In the beginning of Exodus, we see the story pick up from where we left it in Genesis. Jacob's family has settled down and they've begun to multiply and fill the land. But after many years of this, the Egyptians start to get afraid. There are now lots of Israelites, and if they decided to overthrow the Egyptians, they would be a real threat. First, they begin to oppress them and treat them like slaves. Then they threaten to kill all the firstborn sons. Yet despite all this, God still continues to make the Israelites prosper. It is into this setting that Moses comes on the scene. His mother gives birth to him and hides him for a bit before dropping him off at the river bank. We often think of this as a huge risk. What if the child had drowned? But the river wouldn't have had a strong current, and the reeds would have kept the basket protected. But most importantly, the women of the area would have come down to the river regularly to wash their clothes. In some ways, this was a common practice. Just as people used to leave babies at the doorsteps of the orphanages, knowing that they'll be found, women from this era would leave their babies at the riverbed, knowing that they'd be found by those coming to wash their clothes. Yet it still required a lot of trust of Moses' mother. She needed the right person to find her son, so would was able to look after him and wouldn't kill him as the Egyptians had asked. So Moses grows up, and he develops a strong sense of justice. 
He sees an Egyptian oppressing one of the Israelites and kills him. Right heart, wrong action. He then sees some fellow Israelites fighting and seeks to bring peace, but they challenge him and he realises the people are out to get him. He flees into the wilderness and there jumps to the aid of some shepherd's girls, making sure that they have access to the well and watering their flock for them. He may have made some mistakes, but from the beginning, Moses is clearly a man of strong character. Also, take a pause. Man travels to a foreign land, stops off at a well, meets a woman, water is drawn, the woman goes home, tells everyone what has happened, and then becomes a wife. We've seen this story before. Once again, we get to see the classic ancient Israelite boy meets girl story in action. But moving on from there, we get the burning bush. There's a lot we could talk about here. Moses is told to take his sandals off because the ground is holy. Why is the ground holy? Because God's presence is there. God's presence makes things holy. God sees those who are oppressed and his heart is to leave them out of oppression into freedom. He calls Moses to that purpose and thousands of years later, that is his call to us, to bring freedom to those that are in captivity. And God then gives Moses his true name. Lots of translations translate this as Lord in all capitals, which is less than ideal because in English, Lord is a title, not a name. In Hebrew, his name is Yahweh. And so going forward, whenever you see Lord in all capitals, you know that behind that name is the proper name of God. But let's look at Psalm 17. This psalm is attributed to King David and fits into the category of lament psalm. The psalmist calls to God, raises their complaint, asks God to intervene, and then declares their trust in God. Here's the summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. So we start with verses 1 to 2, a call for the Lord to listen. Verses 3 to 5, a call for God to intervene because of the psalmist's innocence. Verses 6 to 8, a call for God to intervene because of his love. Verses 9 to 12, a call for God to intervene because of the psalmist's enemies. Verses 13 to 14, a call to God to punish the psalmist's enemies. And finally, verse 15, a declaration of trust in God. The psalm opens with an appeal to God. The psalmist asks God to listen to his prayers, allow them in his presence, and then vindicate them. They point out that God is at every opportunity to test them, and they have proven themselves innocent of any offence. The psalmist isn't claiming they've never sinned here. Instead, they're pointing out that they've not done anything specific to serve the struggle they are going through. This issue they are facing isn't their fault. Instead, they have lived with integrity. But God shouldn't just intervene because the psalmist is innocent. The Lord is a God of faithfulness and love. In that, he doesn't turn away from those who are oppressed. Then the psalmist turns his focus on his enemies. They lack pity. They speak arrogantly. They use their strength to prey on the weak. The psalmist asks God to intervene and to deal with his enemies. Because right now, it is just like God is rewarding them for their wickedness. Having brought his complaint to God, the psalmist now declares his trust. He allows the truth of God's righteousness and goodness to lead him forward. 